IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about the new album by The War on Drugs. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, a man who on Halloween hashes out bodies along with trends, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, tired, monster mash, wired, Halloween hash. Um, yeah, right. I, I, I'm looking ahead to, um, like like we do every time we record, I have to look ahead to, the, to when people are actually going to listen to this episode. And when our West Coast contingent is... You know, checking out the new episode of IndieCast. Odds are I'm going to be at work in costume. Um, every year, the dietary team has a theme. Last year, we did holidays. Uh, I was Hanukkah, probably a little on the nose. Wait, wait. How do you dress up as Hanukkah? I wore a big dreidel outfit that I returned to Amazon the next day. I I, I feel like <laughs> having a holidays theme is just begging people to devolve into stereotypes that might prove offensive to people. Yeah, we we I think we really tried to. Uh, well, this year we we there was a decision to make it rock stars, and so oh. he, one person like my my entire team is like women except for myself, and like one person brought up she wanted to be Kid Rock, and then we just kind of talked about yeah maybe that's not a good idea. Then someone brought up like you know David Bowie or John Lennon, like all these like legendary rock stars, and like the degrees of cancellation that they're all uh, subject to right now. Now, as for me, what I'm going to be showing up to my job, which is you know through the state of California, um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil it, but let's just say that um, right now, sitting. On my shelf are temporary face tattoos and something called an adult men's music cloud wrapper wig and beard set. Oh, not gonna not gonna I give like it away. It. I'm not okay. And I'm not and I'll, and I'll just point out that when they said rock star, I'm like, well, who has a song called Rock Star? So, yeah, I'm gonna be taking all my sessions on Friday wearing this outfit. Hopefully, I pull it off. I had to actually buy a shirt as well. Like this is, I mean, Steve, like. The fact that you don't, like, go to an office and, like, have these sort of... Th- like, do you dress up for Halloween anymore? Well, I have children. I know, so but that still. that has reinvigorated the love of Halloween because you take the kids uh, out okay. for trick-or-treating and you wear a costume yourself. I often wear the same costume. We have a pirate costume okay. at our house that I've worn a few times. Um, I'll probably wear that. We also just have a collection of wigs. Okay. So you could just slap on a wig and... I'm basically just a Midwestern burnout looking person, uh, which is not too far from what I actually am. I was going to say, I mean, were you tempted at all uh, to go as like turnstile singer Brendan Yates? Uh, I got to I got to hit the gym if I'm doing that, man. Uh, Well, I'm just saying, like, (laughs) do do the people in your office, are they aware that you are? To a degree, a rock star yourself in the music Absolutely criticism world, not. Like, like this. Okay, it, so this is like an alter ego. Yeah, I, that they're totally unaware of. You're like Clark Kent in the. Office. I don't hide it. I just they don't know about Superman. I, I don't hide it. I just think that like to discuss it would. It, it's like speaking a different sort of language. It's like finding out that I have like 
I don't know, an entirely different family a la that guy in succession like Dollar Bill or something like that. It's just like there's there's no real way to kind of understand like the extent to which I discuss, which I, you know, review albums and hash out trends of the minutiae of like indie rock Twitter. Um, I think you just mixed uh, billions and uh, secession references because you said billions, but then you, I'm sorry, you, you said secession, but then you said dollar bill. Oh yeah. Who's a character on billions, well. which I wonder <laughs> that, that seems not to get too far off course here, but that seems like intentional. There needs to, there needs to be some sort of, Meeting of the worlds there. It's like oh, DC and Marvel or something. If, if you could mix that together. Holy shit. I wonder if that will ever happen. This is like the best idea we've ever come up with. Well, Eric Bogosian is on both shows. Oh, yeah. So he is the, he's like the nexus point between the billions and the secession mm. universes. Two uh, very different so characters. <laughs> very different characters. Yeah. And, and um, who does he play on Billions? He, I'm trying to remember his He's character. like the guy who went to jail, like Spartan oh, Knives, right. and now in, uh, on Succession, he's a fake Bernie Sanders. Exactly. Showing the Bogosian range. Yeah. He could go and both. And Uncut Gems. This guy is like an indie cast, like uh, low-key oh, yeah. Hall of Fame character actor. Love Bogosian. Yes. Um, <laughs> I feel like we uh, need to do some housekeeping yes. uh, from last week's episode. Last week, we had to record a few days early because I went uh, to South Dakota, which was uh, an incredible trip, a very weird trip to take. I actually thought of you on this trip, Ian, because uh, while driving through the middle of South Dakota, which is some of the most desolate parts of the country, I, I, I would imagine, I found a weirdly Ian Cohen-esque like, alt-rock radio station uh, that played Owl City and then they played Give Yourself a Try oh. by 1975. Oh, yeah. And a bunch of other uh, sort of emo-leaning rock songs. Uh, and I almost thought I was hallucinating. <laughs> that like that I was imagining you programming a radio station as, as I was driving through, you know, the Black Hills and the Badlands and all this uh, mind-bending uh, terrain. But anyway, uh, we were unsure if Lana Del Rey's record, Blue Bannisters, was going to drop last uh-huh. week. It did come out on Friday. It sure um, did. It sure did. You know, I always feel like I, I don't want to put too much weight on my own social media feed <laughs> as far as that being reality. But am I wrong? I, I feel like that record came and went already. It, it's almost as if it didn't come out at all. I mean, has that record had any impact? Are people excited about that album? Well, I, I think that you're wise in saying that our social medias are not like a greater indication of the world at large. Um, I think that Lionel Del Rey this year has been a um, phenomenal example of tweeting through it. Like the backlash was coming and she just kind of put her head down, put out some records that um, do what the, do what she does like quite well, but don't drum up the kind of excitement that, you know, uh, Norman fucking Rockwell or anything before it did. And I, I, I would... I'm going to say, like, if we're talking about, like, the off-track betting that we sometimes refer to here, like, buy low on Lana Del Rey. I do think that uh, she will be uh, making quite a few appearances on year-ends. Um, I do think that by the time her next album comes up and drums up a little bit more hype, people have gotten the backlash out of the way. Look, it's a decent album. It's it's pretty good. Well, it's, which album do you think will be on the year-end um, list? Because she's put out two albums this year. She's going... Robert Pollard in 2021. I would say that, like, 
Chemtrails Over the Country Club is the better one. But I just think in general people like I think we've seen the 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 pendulum shift from like yeah fuck this we're backlashing Lana Del Rey to you know what we're maybe we're taking her for granted a little so um just a very just a very vertiginous experience with her look it happened yeah, that's the Lana Del Rey supply chain is totally happening my kitchen table got delayed three months but the Lana Del Rey Lana Del Rey that's gonna happen on time. So you think that there's like a huge shipping container <laughs> out at sea somewhere of Lana Del Rey hype that just hasn't arrived yeah. yet to the discourse and in you know early January it's just going to show up on our doorstep. Yeah, it's, it's like how like, my kitchen table chairs arrived like way ahead of schedule, but the actual kitchen table got delayed like three months. So now I'm just going to sit for like the the in this metaphor, which is like completely on point. Like this is an incredible metaphor. Uh, the hype is the kitchen table. Okay. Yes. All right. Well, we'll see. I mean, we—that would actually be perfect because uh, in early January we're gonna have. Yeah, we to got talk fucking about. nothing, dude. So if that shipping container with all the Lana Del Rey hype inside of it, if it can just arrive on our doorstep on say January fifth or something, that would actually be perfect timing. So let's hope that yeah. happens. Otherwise, uh, otherwise it's a, it remains to be seen. Otherwise, it's an entire month of indie rock of indie cast Hall of Fame episodes. <laughs> oh yeah, which hey. Is, that's not the worst no. thing. We can do yeah. that. We we we're actually a little bit behind on that, so we can we'll, we'll induct tons of stuff. We'll we'll induct like the second hours record at that time. Like we'll be so desperate. We'll just be going, you know, several albums deep into the hours discography. Yeah, I, I only go so um, far as uh, their 2002 album Precious, which was I believe produced by Ethan John. So, oh man, yeah. look at you. Yeah, I'm ready. Look at you. It's got the Femme Fatale cover. Uh, Oh man! Oh, the whole okay. Again, we got to hold on to that <laughs> yes. gold. Don't want to spend the gold because we th- we're in rich times right now. We have a lot of uh, things to talk about. We have a, a war on drugs record. This is my Christmas uh, t- uh, today. But so let's hold up on the hours uh, deep cuts. Um, I also have to acknowledge uh, I got roasted on Twitter because of my pronunciation, and I'm going to say it correctly now. Of Dachshund, yes. we we had some Dachshund discourse in our last episode. Uh, I was butchering the name. Of that dog, and we were also arguing about whether it was sausage dog or wiener yeah. dog. Uh, I think you can go either way on okay. that, but definitely I was wrong in my pronunciation of of dachshund. <laughs> so I just want to clarify that uh, I acknowledge my error and I I, I pledge to do better uh, in the future. Yeah. Also, oh, go ahead. Uh, Wait, yeah, with, you, with you, that, you want to take a shot at me too about yeah, this? Yeah, man. It's like the saying goes: like the bigger the lie, the easier it is to believe. And like your confidence in pronouncing dachshund that way, like it really led me to question: like, am I the one who's wrong here? Like, I've been saying this my entire life, but like, this is so radically different. And he's so like assured. Like, it really, yes. it really turned my world upside down. Until you know, the rest of the world uh, came to realize that I was correct. Yeah, I mean, that's that's my strategy with with all things. Just act like I know what I'm doing. Even though when it's clear that I'm not, but you know, I'm big enough to acknowledge my dog related errors on this podcast. So I just, again, I wanted to make clear to our listeners because of the sacred trust that we have with IndieCast Nation that I acknowledge my mistake. If you thought that I was saying it correctly, do not imitate me. I was wrong. Follow Ian's lead on all things Doxins. Yes. Um, also, we have some breaking news. 
Uh, it won't be so breaking by the time this posts, but right before we started recording on Thursday morning, there was a new Spoon album announced. It's called Lucifer on the Sofa. And uh, there's a single called The Hardest Cut. Mm. And what can we say about it? It sounds very spoony. If you if you like spoon, this sounds like spoon. Yeah. Is there anything else to say about it? I mean, we'll probably talk about I mean, this album. I think it comes out in February. It comes out I'm in sure February. We'll talk about spoon then. We are lining up for a lot of big, like you know, for like foundational indie bands, but coming back in 2022. Yeah, it's gonna be good. I think. You know, it looks like kids are going to be vaccinated here at the end of the year. That'll get people out, like any lingering people that have little kids that don't want to go to indoor shows, which I'm in that camp right now. The decks are going to be cleared now for that. It seems like we're going to be full speed ahead in 2022. Yeah, we are going to be really hitting our stride when the Beach House and Big Thief and Spoon albums come out. Oh, man. An animal collective. Oh, it is on. Um, one thing that uh, blew up last week. This happened <laughs> after we recorded. Of course, was uh, John Hinckley, who, <sighs> for those who don't remember or know, he was the man who attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan. I believe in 1981. That was correct. Yeah. So we're at the 40th anniversary of the assassination attempt. I don't know. Like we got to get like Chris Deville of Stereo Gum. <laughs> To write a 40th anniversary piece on John Hinckley's assassination attempt. DeVille is the master of anniversary pieces. He is. And John, Hink- John Hinckley now, he's great at it. He does. He, he writes them for Stereo Gummy. He does such a good job. Chris DeVille, a uh, friend of the podcast. Um, but John Hinckley now is, a, is an indie rock figure in a way because he's been tweeting about, like, uh, tweeted about Neutral Milk Hotel. Yeah. He, he was tweeting about other musical preferences that are sort of cool, and people were getting into yeah. it. They're, 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 Hinkley was blowing up on Twitter last yeah, week. Yeah, I mean, I, I think with the indie rock crowd, like trying to kill Ronald Reagan isn't necessarily going to make you like a villain. Uh, but yeah, like I would hear stories about how this guy would go to Plan 9 Music in Williamsburg, Virginia, not Williamsburg, Brooklyn. But uh, Plan 9 was the record store I went to in college at UVA. And he'd, like, trade in UCDs. And the man has good taste. And, like, I don't think there's anything that will will, will endear you to, like, the indie rock music critic world than, like, having what is perceived as good taste. Because people are just, like, utterly shocked when people who aren't necessarily in this realm demonstrate that they like the same things like big boy the, like the rapper big boy from outcast like he's been talking about how he likes this one kate bush song for like 15 years and getting mileage out of that more ass with john Hinckley. Yeah. oh yeah you know well i don't like ronald reagan either i like neutral milk hotel uh sure this uh, come on in I mean, you almost feel like if Twitter existed in 1981, <laughs> that he could have just tweeted about his musical preferences, and that could have been the way that he tried to impress Jodie Foster, you know, <laughs> instead of trying to kill the president, because that was the motivation for that, that he was trying to impress Jodie yeah. Foster. He was a big fan of the movie Taxi Driver. Yes. So there was all that that sort of stuff. Um, this comparison got brought up. Uh, last week, and I think it is pertinent. People were likening John Hinckley in a yeah a very specific kind of way because these two people are otherwise no, no, not at all alike. But the the guy from Eve Six, mm. 
who became the Twitter superstar of 2020 when he went on and he was funny and he was self-effacing and he was Uh self-aware. And uh, we talked about that at the time that like, what are the limits of this? Like, can you rehab yourself on Twitter by simply just having some self-awareness, having a sense of humor? And I feel like this is like the next threshold. Like John Hinckley, who failed at killing the president, by the way, I feel like if he had succeeded... It wouldn't have worked. By failing to kill the president, it actually made him more successful at Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think one he, thing that was said. He was, lost the battle, but he won the war. Yeah. <laughs> one person said on Twitter that, like, the difference between Eve Six and John Hinckley is that Eve Six had a successful hit. But, which, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but yeah, I mean. Is that too soon? No, it's too been soon. Four, it's been Can 40 we do that years? now? Yeah. And Ronald Reagan has passed. He's been, he, he died, I don't know when, like a while yeah. ago. Nancy Reagan died. Yeah. So yeah, I I think we're okay, yeah. and and again he was unsuccessful. So I think it's okay to joke about unsuccessful assassinations. They're they're inherently more comic than a, than one that succeeds. So again, I think that's what enabled John Hinckley. He was playing the long game. You know, he <laughs> failed in 1981. Forty years later, though, he's a Twitter star. Yeah. Um, and he's a he's a singer songwriter too. So I and I think he has songs on Spotify. He does. Is, is that and apparently true? he uh, got into a little beef with Devo because Devo um, used one of his love letters to Jodie Foster as lyrics, and he complained that like he hasn't gotten royalties for it. Oh man! Yeah, there, it's a very rich text. John Hinckley's uh, indie rock career. That's a that's a kind of a spin on the bad art friend oh, God. scenario. You know, except Devo wasn't really friends with John no. Hinckley, but it's a similar situation where you're lifting someone's unhinged <laughs> public statements and and recontextualizing them for art. Um, I want to read like a twenty thousand word piece in New York Times Magazine about that dynamic. That should be the bad art friend part two yeah. story. I think. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, let's let's get to our mailbag segment. Um, Thank you again for writing in. If you want to hit us up, we're at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at IndieCast1. Um, and if you like the show, please leave reviews. Wherever you get this podcast, uh, leave us five stars or four. We are, we're, we're always open. Uh, you know, if, if you don't think we're perfect yet, if you want to say that we're almost perfect, that's great. Anything below a four, yeah. just keep it to yourself. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to... You don't need to share all your opinions publicly. Um, let's get to our first question. Do you want to read this one, Ian? I will read this one. So this one comes to us from Jordan from Detroit, Michigan. Uh, very indie cast. Um, with the announcement of the new Animal Collective album, Time Skiffs, and the excellent new single, Presser John, it was a good day for an AC head like myself. I've had to act as an Animal Collective defender over the years as the population seemed to become colder and colder to the band. So it was nice to see such a warm response to the new single, people saying this could be their potential comeback album. While I believe Animal Collective have remained relatively strong, especially live, I understand the sentiment. So my question is, what are some of your favorite comeback albums to come out after a long hiatus or string of mediocre albums? And he also asked a bonus question of what indie legacy act you would root for to have a big comeback album. Arcade Fire come to mind, and pre-breakup, Jordan's answer would have been, 
the IndyCast favorite, Yay Sayer. So yeah, Steve, that's, he's buttering you up with that one specifically. <laughs> You're a Yay Sayer Odd, Oddblood like needs booster. like a Oddblood needs like a two episode IndyCast oh, Hall man. of Fame arc. Man, th- that that should be your thirty three and a third opus. If there's any thirty three and a third editors out there, Ian, I think you're ready to write fifty thousand words on Odd Blood. Yes, like tomorrow, you could just do it off the dome. Um, so the, yeah, the question is, so, so he's uh, Jordan is talking about Animal Collective. They announced this new album, Time Skiffs, and and that single is good. Prester John, have you? Yeah, uh, good stuff. To that? Yeah, good it's, stuff. it's it's it's. Good. It's, you know, I'm, I'm not, I am cautiously optimistic. You know, I was thinking about this, you know, and by the way, we, we did an Animal Collective episode. Mm-hmm. I don't know when, sometime last year. We yes. were ahead of this curve. If there is a comeback, we were ahead of the curve. And uh, I feel like a lot of the previous decade, 2010s, uh-huh. in indie rock was about reacting against the music of the late aughts yeah. that Animal Collective was a part of, Grizzly Bear, Dirty Projectors, that Brooklyn art rock scene that was uh, really popular and also critically in vogue. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like there was a generation of critics that came in that wasn't into that, that grew up reading think pieces about how great those bands were. And there was this really pronounced correction, I would say overcorrection. Against that generation of bands, mm-hmm. but it feels like we've moved past that now. And again, this is just a gut feeling I have. But you know, there was that nostalgia for the early aughts, mm-hmm. and I wonder if we're now about to have some nostalgia for the late aughts in in indie circles. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, do you think? Because I feel like that's part of this. I think people are ready, maybe, to embrace Animal Collective like a new record in a way that they wouldn't have been even two or three years ago. I think that you are correct in that Animal Collective has been kind of a mascot for everything people wanted to move past from the past decade uh, to the point where I think the pendulum has swung back to where people might want to overrate an Animal Collective album on the mere fact that it doesn't sound like Floridada or whatever. Uh, (laughs) I I don't know if people are quite ready for that yet. I do think that... um, the the animal like there were a few years where if like you wanted to get like ten thousand likes for a tweet you would just say remember when, when remember when Pitchfork like tricked us all into liking Animal Collective lol like that was a guaranteed viral tweet but nowadays I think that the the reservoir has been exhausted and I think that like Presser John like it definitely doesn't reach their heights of um, you know like their their prime but i do think that people are taking willing to take a much softer attitude towards it but you know as far as like whether or not they can release a comeback album like in the you know jordan asked like what our favorite comeback albums so to speak are it's so much easier to come back from a hiatus than a period of mediocre or just okay albums um, we saw, I think, Lowe do that this year, um, or in 2018 as well with Double Negative. I think Flaming Lips are like the model that Animal Collective would follow, I think. Like, Embry- like at War with the Mystics, like, they were on thin ice before that, and, like, that just completely tanked Flaming Lips stock, and then they made these, like, really dirty and dark albums like Embryonic and, to a lesser degree, The Terror, and I think that was what I'd always been hoping Animal Collective would do. This seems to at least 
trend in that direction. Presser John does, but um, as far as like my my answer to his question, like which is my favorite comeback album of recent times? Come back after a string of mediocre albums. I'm gonna be very on brand. Bring up Jimmy Eat World's Integrity Blues. I had very little hope for that after Damage, but it gave me that feeling when I heard it in 2016. Like not just going from wait, this is like not bad to this is good. Like no wait, this is actually great. Holy shit! Very rare feeling and. I think Integrity Blues bought Jimmy Eat World like 10 more years of me being excited about their album. So that had like the 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 yield has to be like Jimmy Eat World as far as like comeback albums. So you're very on brand with your answer. I'm going to be very on brand with my answer. I think that if you, you know, I was talking about nostalgia for the early aughts Ooh. before and that was fueled by the Lizzie Goodman book, Meet Me in the Bathroom. Ah, yes. Around that time, the Strokes were able to reemerge after a period in the 2010s where I think people left them for dead. And I think maybe even Julian Casablanca yeah. left that band for dead. And then they, they come out with the new Abnormal uh, that came out in 2020. And um, to me, that is maybe their most beloved record since Room on Fire. I mean, oh, yeah. Just, just, just from anecdotal evidence, people talking about that record, there was so much genuine love of that record, and I think it's a really strong record myself. Um, there, there might be some of what you were referring to with Animal Collective, where people might feel tempted to overrate it a little bit. I think that might be happened like a little bit with the new Abnormal, but it was definitely a return to prominence for that band. I would also say, you know, we've talked about this band on this show uh, fairly recently, you know, The Killers is another band that I had left for dead. Uh, And their last two records, I think, are, like, really good. And the the, the records I'm most excited about from that band, probably since their peak in the mid-aughts, you know, the Hot Fuss and Samstown, that era. Yeah. So um, I agree with you. I think what a lot of bands do is they go on an extended hiatus, five, six, seven, eight years, they don't put out anything, and then they come back, and there's this natural response of goodwill to that. Whereas if you've been putting out albums the whole time that people haven't responded to, to get people to click back into attention is always, I think, a really difficult trick. Um, your low example, I mean, that, that I think that's a great example. Like Their last two records, I think, have totally elevated them mm-hmm. past the sort of standard legacy band status, and hopefully Animal Collective can uh, do the same. So. Yeah. And I, I think another example that, like, speaking of on brand, like, the last Muse album, at, by that point, people were, like, were so done making fun of them that they were actually willing to convince themselves, like, hey, you know what, this is actually pretty, it was actually a pretty good album, The Resistance, I believe that was called. Was it called The Resistance? Oh, man, I don't know. Either That's way, that last Muse album. Not half bad. Um, I mean, all- well, and we also talked about Band of Horses last week. Oh, they yeah. Seem- to be in the same slot, you know, Jordan was asking what bands that we would want to have a comeback. That was a band we talked about last week about having good feelings about. I think we would both hope that they put out a record that we could get into in the same way that we get into their best records. Yeah, 2020 shaping up to be the most indie cast year of all. Besting 2021, which was previously the most indie cast year of all. I'm excited for it. <laughs> uh, well, let's get to our second question. Yeah. Uh, and we should breeze through this because I'm excited to talk about the war on drugs. But we, we first have a question from Mitch. He's in Sydney, Australia. 
Tight. And uh, we're always excited to get questions from Australia. Australia? God. Is that how they say it down there? Australia? Uh, you, you, you don't have a good track record with pronouncing uh, exactly. these days. Down under. Down oh, under. Lord. Like, that's how they talk, right? That's yeah. a pretty good Australian accent. Okay, maybe not. But we'll, um, we'll, have to ask, uh, we'll have to ask Mitch. Mitch Mitch just unsubscribed from our <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Uh, with Ian tying the knot recently and much discussion given to the wedding playlist, let's <laughs> shift the attention to the ceremony at the other end of life. What are the tracks you want played at your funeral? Uh, my two are unashamedly Campfire uh, Kansas by the Get Up Kids. And for me, this is Heaven. Uh, that's a Jimmy Eat World song. Yeah. Uh, so Mitch definitely uh, <laughs> leaning towards Ian with this question. Uh, so let me hear your, ter- your, your tear jerkers or mood lifters. Your Chugal, yours and Chugal and Emo, mm. Mitch. Um, Chugal so yeah, so and Emo, a.k.a. Chemo. <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, is this something you've thought about before? Songs you'd be, have played at your funeral? Look, man, Mitch, if you're already unsubscribed because of how Steve, you know, because Steve's Australian. Down accent, under. Down under. Look, man, can't, like, you know me and Get Up Kids. Like, Campfire Kansas is, like, one of the worst Get Up Kids songs. Like, Ooh, not, shots fired. Yeah, dude. Like, I'm, 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 I'm generally speaking a big on a wire backer. Uh, it's kind of like their Woodwater, but man, Campfire Kansas. That I skipped that one. Um, but is that a sad song? I mean, what, it's like an acoustic song, like quite literally about going camping. Um, okay. Yeah, may, I don't know. Maybe you'd fuck with it, but I, you know, I, Mitch brings up how like you would play something different at your wedding as opposed to your funeral. You know, like during my wedding ceremony, I played something from Sigur Ross's uh, album that was titled with parentheses. Um, and that was my first thought for my funeral as well. I think that's why, you know, Sigur Ross has really been making, uh, they've been one of these bands over the past 25 years that has made so much money from Music Sinks because you hear that album and you think like, oh my God, like I am in love like never before. And also I feel like I'm dead. Uh, it does that at the same time. I think Explosions in the Sky would do the same thing. But at a funeral, like... I, I just don't want people to take my death all that seriously. Uh, I would actually prefer to go in the opposite direction and kind of make light out of it. Because, you know, I'd imagine most people would be sad. I want to do things like play, like something that's so on the nose that it's actually funny. You know, like Bone Thugs, The Crossroads, and maybe reenact their iconic VMA performance where they had a horse-drawn buggy with a hearse on it. Um, yeah, like I am going, I am veering completely in the opposite direction, uh, because, you know, with my wedding, like I had to play things that people would enjoy and wouldn't break the mood and were, uh, you know, conveyed certain things about my relationship with another person. My funeral, it's all about me. So we're going to play the crossroads. We're going to play maybe like, I'll be missing you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I am going to die off brand. That's the only time I'm going to be off-brand. So this is an intriguing scenario here because when I first uh, saw this question, I went to a very obvious place. I was thinking, well, I'd want to hear, I want people to play Broke Down Palace by the Grateful Dead because Uh. it's a song literally about dying. It's a beautiful (laughs) song. It's a song I imagine if they're lowering my casket and they play the song, there'll just be tears all over the place. But you bring up an interesting scenario here. I wonder if it is actually kinder as a person who 
who's the corpse essentially in the situation to play music that will make people glad that you're no longer around. So like just like an irritating piece of music. So I'm wondering <laughs> like maybe I'd want them to play the entirety of Lulu. Uh, the Metallica which turned ten. That turned ten this week. That turned ten this week. I didn't even think about that. That's a great shout out to that record, and I I legitimately really love that record. But I I, I just would want people to like listen to Junior Dad uh, <laughs> as they're sitting there and just being like, oh, I'm so glad this guy's dead. Like I'm so glad <laughs> I don't have to be subjected to this guy's music tastes and takes anymore. Um, I was also thinking. You know, because you said, well, the funeral is all about me, but like you're not even there to hear it. You know, like this is not or music that am you are. I? Well, <laughs> it's that's true. Maybe it's like an Albert Brooks situation from that. I don't know if you saw the most recent. <laughs> I did see the most recent curve. The like living funeral. Yes, uh, it could be that. But I was thinking, like, well, maybe the better question is, what song do you want to hear as you're dying? You know, oh. because the the song that's going to usher you out of the world. And I've been listening a lot lately to Screamadelica, the, the Primal oh. Scream record, uh, which uh, turned 30 this year, another anniversary. Um, and I was just thinking about the song Higher Than the Sun. Lord's, which is, uh, uh, Lord's Influence. Uh, no, that was Loaded. Loaded uh, is the one that she ripped off. Oh, okay, but Higher gotcha. Than the Sun is one of the slow songs on that record. Yes. It's very dreamy, very druggy. And I just like to imagine that as I shed my mortal coil, <laughs> that I'll just be on tons of painkillers and just be totally out of it, be like, just have dementia, be on drugs, be totally altered. And I can listen to this very druggy, beautiful ballad about ascending into the sky, uh, you know, either through chemicals or through some sort of spiritual escape. So I think I'd want to hear that song uh, as I I was going. And then you could play whatever at my funeral, except you could play whatever, but first you have to play the entirety of Lulu. Yes. By Metallica and Lou Reed, or Lou Reed and Metallica. I can't wait until uh, we're doing indie cast in our seventies and we're just all completely drugged out. Oh, it's great! I know it'll be <laughs> great. Just incoherence, uh, and I'll be—I won't even pronounce my own name correctly. Yeah, it'll, it'll be—it'll be beautiful. Two thousand fifty-one. That's really going to be where indie cast hits its peak. You thought twenty twenty-two was an indie cast type of year? Wait, wait till we're all whacked out on painkillers. Oh, it's going to be beautiful. I can't wait. Um, all right, let's get to the meat of our episode, finally. My Christmas. <laughs> yes. The, the new War on Drugs record, I Don't Live Here Anymore, drops today. Their fifth album, the first War on Drugs record in four years, the follow-up to their Atlantic Records debut, A Deeper Understanding. Of course, the War on Drugs is a band that formed in 2005, fronted by a guy named Adam Grandusiel. Mm. Uh, when this band first started, Kurt Vile was in the band famously for a few years. He plays on their first record, Wagon Wheel Blues, which came out in 2008. Uh, but he departed shortly after that, and of course he went on to his own very successful solo career. Uh, the big breakthrough for the War on Drugs came in 2014 when they put out their third album, Lost in the Dream. Uh, that's one of my favorite albums of all time. And I'm just going to put my cards on the table. If you don't know anything about me, just know that the War on Drugs are my favorite band of the last decade. Uh, and the new album does nothing to discourage that. Ah. Um, I would say, and this is another uh, part of my shtick, but <laughs> I will stay true to it. This band has passed the five albums test, as far as I'm concerned, with the new album. Uh, I think it's another great record, and I, I'm happy to explain why I think that, but I'm 
curious to hear what you have to say, Ian. I know you like this band. Uh-huh. You don't like them as much as me, no, who but does? you like them. What are your feelings about the new record? Okay, I first have to bring up that Dachshund and Australia, not not your finest moment as far as pronunciation, but this guy with the notoriously, how do you pronounce this guy's, like, I've never said this guy's name out loud because I don't know how to pronounce it. You just, like, nailed it right off top, so. Hey, I, I've, uh, I, I did my research. I listened <laughs> to the CBS uh, This Morning interview ah. with uh, Adam from 2017. So I'm trusting that pronunciation. All right. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I wanted to, to stick the landing on that. I appreciate the acknowledgement. So I am, I, I am generally speaking, a War on Drugs fan. And I think that this album, like I do think they passed five album tests. Now, I think this is a good album. And I also would say that it is probably their fourth best album or my fourth favorite album at most. I think what this album does, and I... Boy, I'm glad that I waited this long in the episode to like say the sort of thing that just might make Steve so apoplectic that he couldn't conduct himself properly over the span. Hey, man, of an I'm hour. chill. I'm a war on drugs fan, man. I'm chill, so don't worry about well, it. Well, let's find out how chill you are when I say that I like war on drugs in the same way I like say like Beach House um, or you know to a degree Tame and Paula. Like they're a band that like when I'm in the mood for this kind of expansive festival filling rock music. But I also don't want to feel anything emotionally too strongly. That's when I can put on War on Drugs. And I think that's kind of by design. Um, It's really interesting over the past decade how a lot of the biggest rock bands, like the ones that play uh, festivals, the ones that like are have reached a peak of popularity uh, are in a way that's kind of vibey. Um, You know, like I think that Adam has even when he does speak from autobiography, uh, I think the way he sings and like the, the lyrics themselves tend to not be, he doesn't tend to overshare. Um, and I think with this record, what happens is that like the kind of emotion of say lost in the dream that I could conjure from the fact that it's a little shoegazy or a little electronic, like he's gone, like this album sounds a lot like Phil Collins or solo Don Henley. It's not like a kind of, evocation of those if i were to hear say like change in the supermarket or i don't want to wait which really does sound like that paula cole song um i wouldn't know the difference but i think that he just does such a good job with it in the in a way that um it's not excuses the blankness but like aligns with the blankness um i can hear like the title track and you know, compare it to something like, say, M83's Kim and Jesse. There's just this big, grand, blank canvas to project my own emotions rather than, like, a stimulus to make me feel something. I mean, do you, do you think that, like, he's kind of, like, reached, like, reached his final form as, like, a big corporate rocker now? Well, I have to address some of the points that you just said. Okay. I mean, you have your own experience with this band, and, and that's how you feel, and I can't argue with how you feel i would just say that it does not align at all with how i engage with this band or how i feel like a lot of the like super fans of the war on drugs engage with them i find their music to be incredibly emotional i mean i think adam's strength his greatest strength is his ability to create just transcendent moments in 
the context of a song. I'm thinking of, say, the second guitar solo from Strangest Oh, Day. yeah, that. The guitar absolutely. solo from An Ocean Between the Waves. On the new record, probably my favorite moment on any record I've heard this year is on the song Old Skin, where uh, it starts out as this piano ballad that slowly builds. You hear a guitar come in, you hear the synths, the synths swell up, and then the drums come in. And it is the most exhilarating moment that I've had listening to a record this year. Mm. I actually like tear up a little bit when that comes in because it's one of those things that it doesn't sound like Bruce Springsteen. It doesn't sound like Tom Petty, but it evokes the same kind of feeling that you get from the crescendos in like the best of the classic rock songs that everyone knows and loves. And I just feel that Adam is so talented at doing that, at isolating those moments, at building them, at just sculpting them so perfectly. And I think on this new record, you know, you asked about him achieving the final form. I mean, I agree with you. If you look at the War on Drugs throughout their entire career, they started out as a band that was much more lo-fi, much noisier, much blurrier sonically. And over the course of 13-some years, they've slowly refined that and clarified it to the point where now instead of making these uh, sort of, uh, you know, homemade versions of arena rock songs, he's just making arena rock songs. Yeah. And and he's not an indie rocker anymore. He's on Atlantic Records. True. So, like, he's on a huge <laughs> label. They're going to be playing Madison Square Garden really? on this tour. Oh, yeah. They're headlining Madison Square Garden. They're at a point now, like, where they're they're playing multiple dates in, in big cities. So they're definitely ramping up to being not just a band that's in, influenced by arena rock. They're, they're playing arena rock at this point. Um, and to me, I feel like, you know, the vibe thing... Certainly, there's an aspect of the war on drugs that I think has been very influential in indie rock and just rock music in general that is plugging into the vibe thing you're talking about. But I actually feel like that has been de-emphasized in their music as they've gone along. I think Lost in the Dream, for instance, is a much vibier record than the, than than this one. That that was a record that where they were still doing these long intros and long outros that were akin to like the fragmented instrumentals that were on like the first couple records. Yeah. And that aspect has been totally excised from the band. And now Adam is just writing great pop songs. Mm. You know, you mentioned, I don't want to wait. I think the title track <laughs> falls under there. Songs like wasted and old skin and harmonious dream, uh, victim. These are all just immediately engaging pop songs that work, uh, because they're just super hooky and I can say this because I've had this record for a while. It's already my most played record of the year. You can listen to these songs over and over again and not get sick of them, yeah. even though they are very immediate. And I think in that respect, that is the Tom Petty aspect of his songwriting that I think he's really developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, even since Lost in the Dream. Lost in the Dream, like I said, is like my one of my favorite albums of all time. Mm-hmm. But there's no question to me that his songwriting has just gotten... Much more streamlined, concise, and uh, approachable Yeah. to the point where I don't think you need to be in their cult or to have heard like the early records to get into this one. This might be the first record that a lot of people hear from this band. I could totally see that happening. So I don't know. I mean, look, you feel like there's a blankness there. I feel like, you know, 
There's so much emotion in this music. I mean, I think that's why I like it. And that's why I think that they can play these big rooms because it connects with people in a way that, uh, you know, you, he doesn't have to spell it, spell it out in the lyrics. You know, it's not mm-hmm. about the words. It's about, again, how that drum part sounds in old skin when it comes in. You know, like the, the, the vocals and the, and the lyrics are all part of like a larger kind of sonic landscape that I think is about evoking just these huge outsized emotions that work so well in like the big rooms that this band is playing now. I would, what, what I, what I wonder about this band is that what, what you mentioned, it's like, yes, it's a motive. And also like, you don't have to uh, pretend that you're Adam when you listen to it. And I wonder sometimes if this is like a reaction or maybe even a necessary counterbalance to, uh, I think a lot of the bigger rock bands or guitar-based bands nowadays where you hear it, it's like, run me over with a fucking truck, Mitski, or something like that. Like, Adam is a guy who, like, he looks like a pretty normal dude. He's uh, married or at least has a kid with, uh, you know, like an actual, like, TV slash movie star. And, like, I don't hear people, like, thinking that they're Adam, even though he's this very aspirational character. It's like, you don't... Like, it doesn't have the cult of personality that uh, seems so necessary when talking about big indie rock these days. I mean, I think... Yeah, like a Mitski or a Phoebe Bridgers. Uh, yeah, he doesn't have that sort of thing, that intensity where it's all about him. Uh, it really is more of like a band persona, even though he's clearly the face of the yeah. band. I mean, to me, like, the the most obvious model for the war on drugs is Wilco. Uh, yeah. Because, like Wilco... You have one person who's clearly at the center of the band, who's the face of the band. You have the bass player, who's the other charter member, you know, <laughs> sort of the vice president of the band. And then, you know, for a part of the history, you had a shifting lineup. But with the War on Drugs, I mean, they really have locked in yes. to this lineup since the touring cycle for uh, Lost in the Dream. In the same way that Wilco has locked in. They locked in around the the tour cycle for Ghost is Born. Like it's been the same lineup since then. But I also think Wilco has been a band that's like their sound has like shifted in a lot of ways. Whereas War on Drugs has been, I think, a lot more like overtly influential. Like if you hear a band uh, trying to do a War on Drugs, like you know they're trying to do War on Drugs. Where I won't say the same thing about like say Wilco. You know what I mean? Well, I think Wilco. When they were in the 90s and they were more of an all-country uh, all band, I think that was influential in its own way. I mean, obviously coming out of Uncle Tupelo, yeah. uh, you know, they were part of that lineage. Um, but, you know, the thing with Wilco is that they just do what they do. And there's times where they're in fashion and times when they're out of fashion. But they just put out albums and they can tour really well. And they don't really need to be a Mitski or Phoebe Bridgers level buzz band to be successful. And I just feel like that's the road that the war on drugs is so clearly on. Like if I were to guess what they're going to be doing in 10 years, I would say that we're going to be getting very good to great albums every three years. They'll tour really well. They'll never be the most fashionable band, but they'll have a fan base of people who will be in there, you know, probably from like say 30 to 50, you know, ages there which is, again, not a very glamorous demographic, but it's a very loyal demographic. 
Yeah. And people, those, those people will go, they'll listen to the war on drugs at barbecues and it'll <laughs> be a great career. Like they'll just be that kind of band. I, I just feel like that is so clearly the road that they're on do to you, me. Do you think that like war on drugs is the most sonically influential rock band of like the past decade? I would say probably yes, just yeah, because same. they've, you know, if you, especially, I would say the songs Red Eyes and Holding On specifically, mm. there's so much music that I feel in, in the rock world that is aping those songs. Yeah. Uh, maybe Holding On even more so, um, where it's that, it's that drum sound, it's the guitar sound, it's how Adam's voice you know, weaves in between all of that, how layered it is, but mm. it also seems like pretty open mm. at the same time. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think they have been influential. I wonder how that's going to spin out from here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious too, like how they're going to evolve from this point, because I do feel like a deeper understanding was a refinement of Lost in the Dream, yeah. and this album is a refinement of, of a deeper understanding. Um, and their evolutions, I think, have become less dramatic mm -hmm. with each record. Like, if you listen to the new record and you listen to uh, Wagon Wheel Blues, those two records are pretty different. But, like, the last three records, I think, exist in a similar space. Mm -hmm. And it'll be, I'm just curious to see if they continue to just refine and refine and refine and get cleaner and cleaner, or if uh, Adam will ever feel tempted to just make another record in his bedroom, you know, with a bunch of tape recorders. Mm -hmm. I would actually kind of like to see that happen because I've been really listening to like a lot of early War on Drugs lately, and I really like that era. I mean, I love their whole catalog, um, but that more um, homemade era, is is really fascinating. He needs to do like Robert Pollard did with that one album, where like they just socked away the entire advance and spent it on beer and just recorded it at home. Like that that that's what Adam needs to do. Like take that Atlantic money, buy himself like some luxury cars. Like I I anticipate him maybe like be, getting into like a Jerry Seinfeld esque luxury car <laughs> era. I wonder. I mean, Adam, you're a rock star. I mean, be a rock star, man. I I would like to see him go. Lo-fi, but part of me is also like, make your version of The Wall. Make your version of Melancholy. You know, go really no, grandiose. Make your, you know, that could be cool, too. Do do a Coldplay album. You know, do do your collaboration with BTS. <laughs> uh, do your Max Martin album. Like, go, go, just like, go complete 180. Um, so you said that this would be your fourth favorite. Are you Yes. Would you say Lost in the Dream is your number 1? Absolutely. Yeah. Lost in the Dream with Slave Ambient coming in at number 2 and a pretty significant drop for a deeper understanding. See, I I think I agree with your top 2 actually. I think Lost yeah. in the Dream is 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 that just seems like the the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot of of the catalog. Uh -huh. And then Slave Ambient I think is such a great capper of their early era. Uh, and that album's aged really well for me. I would put Deeper Understanding and I Don't Live Here Anymore. And even Wagon Wheel Blues, that's been a real up-and-comer for me recently. As like 3A, 3B, and 3C. I, Arms I, Like Boulders, see, that, I mean, that's a great song. Or Show Me the Coast, I love yes. that. I mean, just the 10-minute song, so noisy. <laughs> um, I really like that. Uh, I like that kind of thing. 
Um, but I don't know. To me, like their catalog is really consistent. I I, I love all five albums. I yeah, don't not a dud in the bunch. I don't think. Yeah, I I think it's really strong. And I think you make an interesting point about the cult of personality thing because yeah, Adam I think has done something where he is the figurehead of the band, but he's also pretty clearly not interested in celebrity. Like I don't see him doing the Kevin Parker thing, like where he's going to be trying to get on Travis Scott records and things like Maybe that. Maybe that should happen. Like that's the thing. Like I, I, I want to see, you know, like, uh, I, I want to see like a Kevin, I want to see an Adam, uh, war on drugs beat on like a, the next posthumous pop smoke album. <laughs> All right, we now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so, you know, a, a part of me does want to give a shout-out to Dan Ozzy's new book, Sell Out, but, I mean, it's a great book, but that dude's been all over every single outlet this week, so this, that guy doesn't need any more attention. Uh, Shout-out to Dan, but also, Dan, go away for a little bit. No, I'm just playing. Great book. But, um... Uh, an, an album that came out this week that actually evokes a lot of the uh, major label punk slash emo bands that Dan talks about in his book uh, is a band called Save Face. Uh, they are a band who put out a album called Another Kill for the Highlight Reel. If you look at the album cover, it looks a lot like the one from Distillers, uh, Coral Fang. And the sound itself is taking a lot of cues from uh, Black Parade era My Chemical Romance. Very interesting shift because on their previous album, which came out in 2018, Mercy, uh, it was more of like a kind of quasi-emo or is it pop-punk type sound. This one's gone incredibly theatrical. They all wear matching red jumpsuits. Um, Pretty clear-cut My Chem uh, fanfic, but at the same time, I I just love an album that embraces the more campy side of uh, things and also has you know kind of a big major la- major indie label production they really commit to the bit on this one and i can't think of a heck of a lot else that's like it right now so i'm very curious about it whether it finds an audience or if it finds an audience but if if you find yourself being nostalgic for particularly that 2004 5 era of uh mainstream emo i would say that save face Definitely a band you need to check out this week. So I'm going to go in the total opposite direction with my <laughs> recommendation. I want to talk about a singer-songwriter from Canada named Miriam Genron. Uh, yeah. She uh, is a cult favorite. I think if you're into indie folk type music, she put out her debut record in 2014 called Not So Deep as a Well. Uh, and it's been a while since she's put out a new record, but she finally dropped a follow-up this month. It's called Ma Delire, Songs of Love, Lost and Found. And uh, this is a record I've been playing a lot lately. It really casts a spell. Uh, so be be warned if you put this record on, because I have a feeling that you're not going to want to shut it off. Um, it's a collection of reimagined folk standards from Canada, France, and the United States. So sometimes she's singing in English, sometimes she's singing in French. And I know that like when I say a collection of reimagined folk standards, that people might have this idea that it's this very neat and sterile-sounding record, very you know, coffee house, uh, Starbucks CD on the counter type record, but it really isn't like that at all. Uh, Miriam Gedrond is really gifted, I think, at taking old songs and 
revering them but not being intimidated by them. You know, she injects a lot of rawness and a lot of feeling into these songs to the point where it feels like they were written last week. And to me, that is what the best interpreters in the folk realm always do. You know, it it connects you to this history that you didn't know existed, but you suddenly realize is is relevant to your own life. And to me, that's what this record does. It's a really powerful record of just a very kind of cathartic listen and uh, I, I really recommend it. I think it's it's a really beautiful album, and it's perfect for this time of year, uh, as the the weather turns cold. At least where I live, I guess in San Diego, it's good. It rained on Monday. It totally rained on Monday. It was like cold and rainy for one day. What's cold though? Fox- What's cold in San Diego? Like sixty five. Okay. I listened to Foxing's Dealer, and now it's going to be eighty six today. So <laughs> beautiful. We've now reached the end of our episode here on IndieCast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.